Let's go to Ezra chapter 1. Um, we're going to read straight through to begin with the whole chapter, and then we will reach into the text a little deeper. So let's go. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is God who is in Jerusalem and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone who the Spirit of God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares. Besides all that was freely offered, Cyrus the king also brought out all the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, the king of Persia, these brought these out <coughs> in, in charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shespazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 gold, bold, bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So, we come to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we see that there is a, there's an outline here of what's going on. But before we do the outline, just so you guys start taking notes there. Before we do the outline, let's, let's think about the state of Israel. <clears throat> let's think about the state of Israel as we uh, consider this outline, right? The, the state of Israel before Ezra and Nehemiah is there in exile. They have, they have lost their home. They've been taken out of the kingdom. They have been put in exile in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar came and took all the wealthy, smart, and intelligent people and pulled them out of Israel into exile. So the state of the actual location of Jerusalem is in ruins. Not only is it in ruins, but only impoverished, broken people were left. Uneducated, impoverished. Not, these aren't pulling themselves up by their bootstraps type people. These are people who can't. Who were broken people. Broken people had to stay. The wealthy, the elite, the educated, the hard workers, the ones who had built Jerusalem originally had been dragged out of Jerusalem and taken into exile, and they lost their homeland. They were people living in exile. Now, when they lived in exile, something happened. The hearts of people were stirred, and they started these things called synagogues. What we know of now as modern synagogues derives from this time period, from the exile. Seventy years they're in exile, and, and so there are people who were dragged away from Jerusalem that were born in Jerusalem that are still alive in Ezra. They saw the glory and majesty of the Jerusalem kingdom. They knew what it was like to be a nation. They knew what it was like to have their own governance and to not have to submit 
excess taxes to worship and, and to have a sacrificial system. They knew what it was like to have a sacrificial system and they longed for it and they longed for it to be restored and they were now living in exile and they've been there for a while. They've been under pagan rule. Living with modified worship under pagan rule that lords over the people. This is evident in the book of Daniel. As you read the book of Daniel, you'll see the pagan rule ruled over the people, demanding that they would worship at certain times, that they would sacrifice certain things, that they would do things in a way that appeased the pagan society around them. Third, they'd gotten comfortable. They were comfortable in Babylon, especially when Cyrus began to rule, because all of a sudden religious tolerance popped up. So these Jewish people were comfortable where they were. They were comfortable in Babylon. They had made friends. They had businesses. They were successful. They were being blessed by God in a foreign land. They were being blessed by God in a foreign land. All you have to do is read the first couple chapters of Daniel to see this. That as they lived in this foreign land, though they were oppressed and though they were pushed on, though they had struggles, they were also blessed by God in this land and they were successful. And they became leaders and directors and they they had synagogues and they had organizations that would get together and they they had leadership teams, they had civic organizations that they were parts of. They were actively involved in the world around them and God had blessed them and they had become comfortable. And one of the things we're going to see as we go through Ezra and Nehemiah is that only a small portion return. And the question that should spark in your brain is why is it so small? Because everyone should flock to the house of God. But it's small because people got comfortable where they were. And they didn't want to go. So the state of Israel, the people, is that they're in synagogue worship. They're under a pagan rule, but they're comfortable where they are. They're comfortable. The state of the land is that it's in ruins. The state of Israel itself, the the location, is that it's in ruins. Ezra chapter 9, you've got this Ezra lamenting mixed marriages. In Ezra chapter 9 and 10, he tells them all that they have to fix this. They have to, they have to do all this stuff to fix it. And they, they, um, the people who are there in Israel have, have intermingled with people who are not Jewish, who don't worship Yahweh, who aren't even proselytes. But they're mixed worship and they're synchronizing their worship with the culture around them. And they are becoming half-Jews, half-Jewish. The state of the land itself and the temple is that it's in ruins. They, this place is decimated. It's dropped. It's, it's gone. It's destroyed. Obadiah records that Edom was pillaging the land when all the people were taken out of it. So they were coming and pillaging the land and taking things. And Obadiah scorns them and says, the Lord will punish you for doing this. And then the state of the law is that it's non-existent. The law of God has not been read among the people for years. Apart from occasional readings in the synagogue, they have not had a rally where the people gather and read the law. And if you remember last week in Deuteronomy chapter 18, that is the one thing the king is supposed to do. Make a copy of the law and read it to the people. That's the one thing. So there's no king to read the law. There's no law being proclaimed. The land is in ruins and the people are comfortable in their exile. That's the state of Israel as we enter into the book of Ezra. And that's why it matters so much to see Ezra, uh, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah lead the people back into the land. So, Now, an outline of the book of Ezra. The key leader in Ezra chapter 1 through 6 is actually a guy named Zerubbabel and Sheshbazzar. Those are two people. We don't know. uh, There there was a great deal of speculation that these were the same guy, that Sheshbazzar was his Babylonian name and Zerubbabel was his Jewish name. Born in Babel is what that means. So he was, uh, he's a, a person, Zerubbabel is a person who's born in Babylon, like he's born outside of 
uh, Jerusalem, so he's young. But Sheshbazar is the one who comes first, and he's the one that we read about in chapter 1. Now, there's speculation that they're the same person. There's also speculation that they're two different people, that this is an uncle and a nephew. There's a couple things that we know about him, that he is, uh, he is the, um, he's the descendant of Judah, and he's the descendant of David. So he's a descendant of the king, both of them, Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel. So the, the point remains... He's the governor that comes. Zerubbabel is the one that takes over after chapter uh, 2. Sheshbazar is in chapter 1. So we've got first the restoration decree, which we read just a minute ago. Then you've got the return to Jerusalem in chapter 2. The rebuilding begins in chapter 3. Opposition arises in chapter 4, and the rebuilding halts for 10 years. Work is halted for 10 years and then resumes in chapter 5. The temple is completed, and Passover is celebrated in chapter 6. So that's chapters 1 through 6, the leader being Zerubbabel. Enter in chapter 7, we get Ezra. Ezra, who's the priest, shows up in chapter 7. Now he's approximately, there's approximately 60 years between 5 and when Ezra shows up. I mean 6 and when Ezra shows up. There's about 60 years between chapter 6 and 7. And that's when the story of Esther begins. So you have 10 years of halted work and then 60-year interlude before the priest shows up, before Ezra shows up. Ezra returns with the exiles in chapter 7, and the people return in chapter 8. He brings particular people in chapter 8, verse 20, 1 through 20, and he ensures to bring qualified people in verses 21 through 36. And so that's where there's a pause where he gets the right priest to come with him. Then there's a recognition of sins of the people in chapter, in chapter 9, which is the people of Jerusalem confess their sins altogether under Ezra's leadership. Ezra gives a prayer of confession and then reforms and then offers reforms for the people to divorce. And this is where it goes weird because Ezra seems to contradict Malachi, who's a prophet at the exact same time as Ezra. And you know in the book of Malachi, Malachi says of the Lord, I, the Lord, hate divorce. Ezra commands the people to divorce their foreign wives. It's weird. You should be excited because we're going to get into that. And we'll have lots of great lunch conversations. It'll be fantastic. Um, we never shy away from a difficult conversation at Sovereign Grace. We believe that truth is imperative and that uh, you should... You should never run from truth. So just a teaser for when we get to Ezra chapter 10, like next year, it'll be great. Um, now, don't get hung up on that right now. We're not doing that today. We're doing Cyrus. So this is just an outline. Nehemiah chapter 1 through 13, the key leader is Nehemiah. And I tell you the whole outline of Ezra and Nehemiah because this is one book in the Hebrew canon. And so we want to treat it as one book. It, it was one book for for hundreds of years until um, the New Testament came about and then we divided it into two for the sake of ease of markings. So uh, Nehemiah, and there's really no other reason to divide it into two, just in case you're wondering. This, this, it has one theme, one book, one story. It, it all runs together. So uh, first, Nehemiah begins with a prayer for the remnant, then a returning uh, amidst opposition in chapters two through six. Opposition from within and opposition from without. He shows up and he has problems with the people in the city and he has problems with the people outside of the city and he has problems with the uh, governing officials. Nehemiah, lots of good leadership stuff going on in this book. Then he, there's a registration, a revival and reforms in chapters 7 through 12. And then in, at the end of the book of Nehemiah, the law, the land and the people are all restored. Still, there's a new heart that is needed. There's a new heart that is needed. It, the end of Nehemiah ends with Nehemiah recognizing that we need a new heart. At the end of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you, the people need a king who will write the law in their hearts, a priest who will take their sins away, and a prophet who will be the voice of the Lord within them. And that's the end of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in outline. That's what they need. Now, let's get to Ezra chapter 1. 
Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the, that the, whole, that the word of the Lord would, by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that he made a decree, a proclamation, throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing. So first, who is Cyrus? Who is Cyrus? For Cyrus is the king of Persia. He's a pagan king. He's not a God-fearing king. He's a pagan king, a worshiper of many, of God, many gods. We have lots of decrees from Cyrus in history that are written on uh, cylindrical tablets that are written on these tablets, and they say things like, I, Cyrus, worshiper, worshiper of the gods, such and such. And he just adds the God of whoever he's giving the decree to, to the people. So Cyrus's proclamation that he uh, seems to believe in Yahweh is the same proclamation he gives elsewhere that he believes in Modoc and Molech and the, the gods of Babylon at one point and, and the gods of Egypt at one point. He puts this at most decrees. And this should tell you something about Cyrus. Cyrus is a good politician. Because if you're a good politician and you show up at a Catholic mass, you take the mass. If you're a good politician and you show up at a Baptist worship service, you, you participate in the Baptist worship service. If you're a good politician and you show up in an African-American church and they're clapping their hands and swaying, guess what? You're going to clap your hands and sway, even if you don't have any rhythm and shouldn't be doing it. Right? This is... This is normal. He is a politician. He expresses toleration through syncretism, which means he's just taking on other gods. So some people thought at one point that um, Cyrus had a affinity for the Jews because he may have also been monotheist. But what we see is that Cyrus in history is much more that Cyrus was synchronistic. And he would just kind of take on whatever religion he needed to in the moment to express religious toleration for people. So he was a tolerant leader. So God raised up a pagan, tolerant leader to accomplish his purposes. God raised up this pagan, tolerant leader to accomplish his purposes. Whatever good he showed to Israel does not seem historically to have changed his heart. Now, we can't talk about the heart of Cyrus and real detail because there's no place in history where Cyrus goes off talking about his own private devotional life. Everything that we know of Cyrus is connected with some sort of decree that he made. So maybe the Lord was gracious to him and rescued him. But the point of this passage here is that God uses this pagan king to save a nation. I don't know if you noticed when we read the opening scripture in Isaiah 45. It's on the front in the front page of your bulletin. The um, Isaiah 45 verses 1 through 13. Notice how often the Lord says, I will do these things. I will raise you up. I will do this thing. I will make this happen. I will do this. It's because Cyrus was raised up by the Lord, but it's the Lord's hand that does the work through, through Cyrus. The second thing Cyrus is called is God's shepherd. That's a fun one because we tend to think of God's shepherd must be somebody who believes in Jesus. Like this must be somebody who's saved. But that's not necessarily the case. In Isaiah chapter 44, verses 24 through 38, it says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretches out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. I love how God always emphasizes that. Whenever he's talking about creation, he's like, I did this. You had nothing to do with it. He emphasizes that over and over. Verse 25, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners who frustrates, I mean, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says of the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill my purposes 
saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So God explains here that he is going to rebuild Jerusalem, the temple, and he's going to use Cyrus to do it. Cyrus is his shepherd, is his shepherd to do it. Now he is not the good shepherd. He is rather a shepherd that is coming that God is going to use to do what he wants. God is going to accomplish his purposes through Cyrus laboring to bring pasture to the people of Israel. Now, God uses Cyrus um, to accomplish his purposes. And one of the things I want to point out to you is that our prayers for politicians and for leaders matters. The things we pray matters. The things we pray matters. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1-4, through 4, it says, First of all, I urge... That all supplic- that I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. God can use politicians to bring peace on the earth, whether the politician wants them to or not. God can shift the hearts of anyone, and he can turn the king any way he wants. God can use Joe Biden. God can use Kamala Harris. God can use these people for His glory and for His purpose. It doesn't matter who they are. So we pray for our political leaders that we might live a peaceful and quiet life because this is good in the sight of God. Because a peaceful, quiet life under tolerant rule of pagans is preferable to a wicked, sinful life under any rule of anybody. It is good to live a peaceful, quiet, dignified, holy life amidst a culture that rejects God. And we pray for our leaders that they would be tolerant, that they would be good leaders, that they would rule according to the precepts found in Scripture. That's what we pray for every week. We pray first for their salvation, that they would repent and believe. But if they don't, that they would govern by the precepts that are laid out in Scripture, on purpose or on accident. And that's exactly what Cyrus does, by the way. He ends up governing by the precepts that are laid out in the book of the law, and he just doesn't even know it. It's pretty incredible. So we pray for these things. We pray uh, that, they're, that they would change and be saved, that they would be altered. Back to Isaiah chapter 44, verses 24 through 28. This prophecy is in the middle of a chapter where God talks about a lot of things that seem impossible. This, this prophecy is in the middle of a chapter where everything seems impossible. If you're in exile in, uh, in Babylon and you read this prophecy in Isaiah that says God's going to raise up this random king who's going to be a pagan, but he's going to be his shepherd and he's going to lead the people back to Israel and they're going to rebuild the foundations of the temple. Can you imagine that? I mean, this seems impossible. This is why we include our prayers for politicians in impossible prayers because I don't understand how God can take some of the leaders that we have in our country right now and do the right thing with them. Like, I don't. I have a hard time believing that that can happen, but I've seen it in the scripture and I know it can happen because God does it. So I pray to the Lord, Lord, I believe but help my unbelief. Because God can do this, and He will. Now, one day, Jesus will come as our good shepherd. And He's not just the shepherd, He's the good shepherd. Jesus comes as our shepherd. One day He will come to the Jews in, this, in Ezra, but for us He has come. And we have a good shepherd. And we can live above the things of this world. Because we have a good shepherd who guards our hearts and protects our minds and protects our souls and walks with us through all of life. He walks 
among his people. He is the good shepherd who, in whom we find pasture and salvation. Only repent and believe in Jesus and be saved and have life and life eternal. Next, Cyrus is called God's anointed in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 1 through 8. In Isaiah chapter 45, verses 1 through 8, it says this. Thus says the Lord to his, angel, to his anointed, Cyrus. He calls him his anointed. The word anointed is the same word Messiah. Just in case you were curious. It's the same one we use for Messiah. It means blessed of God, anointed of God, chosen of God. That's what, that's what this word means. Chosen for a task, chosen for a thing. Now, Cyrus, I, I want to be clear, is not the Christ, the Messiah. Not that one. He is an anointed of God. So this term is being used by Isaiah where Cyrus is becoming a type for Christ. He's becoming a picture of Christ. And it says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places. That means the things that are hidden is what he's getting at there. I will give you the things that are hidden all over. And that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Just pause there. God calls Cyrus by name. A pagan king who doesn't want anything to do with worshiping him. And God calls him by name. You get called by name by God. And you are his child. There's a difference. You are his child. So when he calls your name, it's out of love for you, out of desire for you, and he calls you to himself. My sheep hear my voice and they come to me. He's the good shepherd who calls you by name to himself and brings you life and salvation. And he can call the name of anyone he wants. And he can call them by name and make them do what he wants. But you he has called by name and called you to himself and your heart has been transformed and you have come. And there is delight in his presence because he knows your name and he has called you by name. So he calls him by name, verse 4, for the sake of my servant Jacob and my Israel and, and, my, and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other Besides me, there is no God. So he says to Cyrus, I'm the Lord. There's no other God. And I'm it. I'm the one who calls you by name. And you have added me to your pantheon of gods. But I'm the only one. There's not another God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit and let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. God has made all things. He has brought he has brought Cyrus's. Um, has brought Cyrus forward as his anointed. He is king of Persia, good shepherd, God's anointed, and God blesses him in chapter in chapter forty five of Isaiah. He said, Did you notice? He gives him wealth. He gives him victory, and he calls him by name. Cyrus did not know the Savior, and Cyrus is not the Savior, but he's called the anointed, the fullness of God is known in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ is the Savior. He is the Lord. Cyrus becomes a picture of that. In that Cyrus goes back to, he leads, the, he, take, he, well, he sends the people back to Jerusalem and then is responsible for getting the temple rebuilt. 
the foundations of religion, the foundations of faith in Jesus, are rebuilt in this temple. They lay the foundations. Note that it's a king who lays the foundations, a descendant of David who lays the foundations. Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel. Sheshbazar in chapter 5 of Ezra is quoted or is called the one who lays the foundations of the temple. So we have this picture of the king of glory, Jesus, coming back and rebuilding the foundations of all that is worship. Indeed, First Peter, he is the cornerstone, the foundation of our salvation and life and worship of God. So we have this incredible picture of Cyrus looking like Jesus. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, is the fullness of God in human form. Colossians chapter 1 verse 19 and in 2 verse 9 and then in Luke verse chapter 4 verse 8 he uh, verse 18 sorry he is the one from whom we would be saved we get saved in Jesus Christ God's Messiah the Lord fourth thing to note about Cyrus Daniel knew him and probably advised him Daniel knew Cyrus and probably advised him He knew him as an advisor in in Daniel chapter 1, verse 21. It says Daniel was there until until the first year of King Cyrus. So Daniel is in the court of the king until that first year. So at some point he gets moved out of the court of the king in that first year. And then as a noble, I'm sorry, as a noble, Daniel prospered under Cyrus in Daniel chapter 6, verse 28. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and during the reign of Cyrus, the, the Persian. Daniel prospered. Now that chapter 6, verse 8 is probably somewhere around 539 uh, B.C. Just hold on to that in the back of your head, that it's somewhere around 539 B.C. Daniel, um, also in Daniel 10, Daniel has this terrifying vision that warms of impending conflict. And he ends up on his knees praying to the Lord. And at the end of the vision, Michael... Uh, the archangel comes to him and says, had it not been for your prayers, I would not have overcome the prince of Persia. Right? So there's these spiritual things going on and Daniel is in exile. He's in Persia. He's in Babylon. He's, he's off where Cyrus is and he's compelled by the Lord to get on his knees and pray for the people of Israel. This happens somewhere around Ezra 3 and 4. When the temple begins, when the temple begins being rebuilt. There are spiritual forces at work in the book of Ezra. There are spiritual forces at work now that are at war against the church of God that cause struggle and cause difficulty. And you and I are often laid to the ground to pray for something we don't understand. And we are often dropped to our knees to pray for something that's just overwhelming. We don't even understand what's going on. And like Daniel, we pray. And like Daniel, our prayers are used to bring victory. Daniel's prayers enable Michael to overcome the prince of Persia in Daniel chapter 10. This is a weird chapter. I'll just be real honest. It's a strange chapter. And it's one of these chapters that just as hard to wrap your mind around except for one thing that prayer matters and God calls us to pray so Cyrus is the king of Persia the good she- he's God's shepherd he's, he's God's anointed he, Daniel knew Cyrus Jeremiah prophesied of Cyrus indeed that is the prophecy that is given at the beginning of the book where it says this is Cyrus is going to make this decree in fulfillment of, Dan- of Jeremiah's prophecy the prophecy is also recorded in uh, second, the same phrase is in Second Chronicles chapter um, chapter thirty six verses twenty two through twenty three. But in Jeremiah chapter twenty five verses twelve and thirteen, it says this: Then after seventy years is completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And just pause there. Often we are like the prophet Habakkuk, and we look at the world around us and we go, How long are you going to let injustice? persist how long are you gonna let this happen and God often responds with oh don't worry I'm bringing somebody worse to crush them that's what happens in Habakkuk Habakkuk goes Lord how long are you gonna let the kings of Israel do this wicked stuff and be so wicked and and crush the 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 weak and the poor and the impoverished and God's like don't worry I'm bringing Assyria and they're gonna kill everybody 
And Habakkuk goes, they're worse than us. That's his response. They're worse than us, Lord. And he goes, don't worry. I'm going to bring somebody behind them even better than they are. And they're going to take them out. Don't worry. Don't worry, Habakkuk. But I'm going to keep a remnant. I'm going to keep a remnant of you. And I'm going to, it's going to be all right. And Habakkuk at the end of the book goes, well, um, I guess I'll just wait. That's his answer. At the end of the book, I, I guess I'll just wait because you know what you're doing. And that's the only answer we can give. Understand Habakkuk is giving the only logical answer that anyone who is a believer in Yahweh can give. Lord, I trust you. I don't understand any of this. I trust you. You do it. You take care of it because I trust you. Indeed, that's the only answer we can give in anything. It's the answer to salvation. How are you saved from sin? I trust Jesus. I trust that he took my sins upon the cross, that he died, that he rose again, and he's going to come back and get me. I trust in him that I have life. That's the only answer. And the people of God, that is our answer to God. So here, Jeremiah prophesies after 70 years the Chaldeans I'm going to punish them for their iniquity and then in verse 13 I will bring upon the land the words that I have uttered against it everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all nations then again in Jeremiah 29 verses 10 through 14 he goes on says for thus says the Lord when 70 years are completed for Babylon I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Seventy years, the Lord said, He's going to bring them back to this place. He's going to bring them back. He will fulfill His promises. For I know the plans I have for you. This is a great verse that gets taken out of context all the time. Understand the context here. is in the promise of bringing them back from 70 years of exile. Here's the promise. right? I'm going to bring you back, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans for your welfare, not for your evil, to give you a future and a hope. You put that on t-shirts and on mugs, right? We drink out of that all the time. That was a specific promise made to Israel that was fulfilled to Israel. And while the principle remains that God keeps his promises, his plans might be for you to go through a trial like Job or to have your head cut off like John the Baptist. Right? This specific promise has a specific purpose. And if we, if we misapply Jeremiah 29.11 to everyday things, then we're going to miss the point. Which is that God has promised us redemption in Jesus Christ. And no matter what we go through here, we can go through 70 years of exile and pain and losing everything. No matter what we go through here, our promise remains secure and that Jesus Christ is coming back to get us and redeem us and rescue everyone who trusts Him. That's the promise for us. That's the delight for us. So we keep reading verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come to pray to me and I will hear you. That is the book of Ezra. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Oh, we jumped into Matthew. Right? That's the... That's what happens here. The book of Ezra gets this. They, the people come and they pray and they call to him and they just miss it. Nehemiah, they come and they pray, they rally, they have reform and registration and they have worship and they just miss it. But then Matthew comes and Jesus enters the picture. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The word becomes flesh. In Mark, Jesus walks in healing people. In Matthew, the king has come. And in Luke, the great prophes- the prophesied promised one has come to rescue people. Verse 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Ezra and Nehemiah are a partial fulfillment of the promise. Jesus is the completion. In chapter 33 of Jeremiah, verse 10 through 11, it says, Thus says the Lord in this place which you say, it is a waste without man or beast, that's the city of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without inhabitant or beast, 
there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the voice of those who sing as they bring thanks offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for His steadfast love endures forever, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. So He is, Cyrus is the king of Persia. He's God's shepherd. He's God's anointed. He's, Daniel knew who he was and probably advised him. And the prophet Jeremiah prophesied about him. So what do we learn from reading about Cyrus here and learning about Cyrus? First, God's faithfulness is not dependent on the goodness of man. Key thing for you to understand. God's faithfulness is not dependent on the goodness of man and that includes yours. God's faithfulness is not dependent on your performance. You get to do good because God has forgiven you and loves you and cleans you and washes you off and gave you a new nature, which he is renewing in the spirit every day. You get to do good. It's not a checklist. It's not a box. You get to do good. Because your heart has been cleaned and redeemed and therefore the offerings you bring before, before the Lord in Jesus Christ are acceptable and delightful to God. You please God when you live in holiness. We can say something Isaiah had troubled with. Remember what Isaiah says, all my righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. We can say, because we're covered in the righteousness of Christ, that we bring delight to the Lord in our obedience. God's faithfulness is not dependent on the goodness of man. Cyrus didn't have to be good in order for God to fulfill his promises. Second, God can work through anyone. If God can work through a pagan king who synchronizes everything and, and God can use him to bring toleration to his people and allow them to rebuild the land, then God can work through anyone. God can work through anyone. Third, God is active in the world even when we don't see it. Daniel was impressed upon by God to pray for the people and he knelt down and he prayed and God was actively involved in the world even though we didn't see it. Finally, God uses his people to accomplish his purpose, sometimes even in the background. Your prayers and work in the background where no one knows your name is often greater than anything you could possibly do on a stage or in front of people or on, I don't know, TikTok, whatever, that, that you could do with a, a large audience. Your quiet work in the background of righteousness and obeying the Lord and praying when He calls you to pray and laboring to serve and love your neighbor is of greater value, is of greater value than the names that are heralded on our earth, than all the attention that people get. Now, we get to the stirring, the stirring that we see in Ezra. So if you're still in Ezra, I want you to note that it said, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus the king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout the kingdom. And he also put it in writing. Thus says the Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given to me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has changed me and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all the people, may God, uh, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is God who, <clears throat> he is God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver, gold, and with goods and beasts, besides free will offerings to the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So Cyrus is stirred up. The Lord stirs up the kings to his purposes. He's stirred up. He acknowledges a God that he does not know in verse 2. He expresses religious tolerance in verse 3, saying, let you live by your conscience, your God. Go worship your God by your conscience. And then he makes a decree apply to everyone. 
says, let them be aided by the people who are in your area, who live near you. Give them gold and silver. Give them things to help them on their way. And it's a very polite, this is a very polite way of saying, listen, I want all the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. I want all the people who feel like they need a temple to go back to Jerusalem. Worship in freedom of conscience. Worship in freedom of conscience. And hey, everybody who lives around them, why don't we help them out a little bit? Take up a neighbor, neighborhood offering and send them on their way, right? So God stirs up kings to his purposes. The next thing, God stirs up his people. Look at verse uh, 5 and following. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah, Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, and everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who went were with them and aided them in vessels of silver and gold and with goods, with beasts and costly wares besides besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen. I'm just going to jump down to uh, verse, let's see, verse uh, 11. All the vessels of gold and silver were about 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So you've got the heads of Benjamin, Judah, and the priests and Levites leading the way. They come and they lead the way. Now that's, note, that's three out of 12 tribes. It's three of them. It's not everybody. It's three out of 12 tribes and then the trained priests. Right? So it's not, it's a small group. God stirred up the hearts of a small group of people to make a difference in the world. To go back and rebuild the temple. God stirred up a small group of people that he was going to use to set the foundation. He also stirred up willing neighbors. There's something to be said about the way the Jews lived in exile that we can learn from. There's something there. And that is that they, they built relationships and businesses with people. They worked and gave commerce to people. They were just employers and employees. They worked hard at what they did. They lived at peace and quiet in exile. They lived respectfully to those around them. And as such, God stirred up for them willing neighbors when they were headed back to Jerusalem. When they were leaving, their neighbors were willing to assist. And then God gave them a descendant of David, a descendant of Judah to lead. Now, they return to the land. And at the end of Ezra chapter 1, we've got some of the people are gathered back to the land. We've got some of the blessing of God has been restored. We've got a king-type person in Sheshbazar of Judah. Cyrus is stirred up. The Lord's people are stirred up. And we've got a king-type person in Sheshbazar slash Zerubbabel who are coming back and leading the people back to the land. Now, Jesus is the fulfillment of what Jeremiah did prophesy. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the words of His power. When He had made purification for sin... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I want you just to take a second to note what that passage says about Jesus in relation to Ezra. Ezra brings the people back to to Israel. He's leading the people back. They're going to rebuild the foundations of the temple. They're going to rebuild everything. But they need the king. They need the prophet. They need the priest. They need the one who's going to bring all those things. Look at this. Jesus is the exact radiance, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature. First, this is God in the flesh. God in the flesh leading the people. God made man. 100% God, 100% man. He's the exact representation of God's glory and His image. He is the print of God on the earth. He is a... 100% man, 100% God. And the reason that we say 100% man, 100% God, not 50-50, is because it's not supposed to make sense. He is divine and human. It says, He upholds all things by the word of His power. The very word of Jesus brings life. 
The very Word of God here brings life. So what did they need when they were going back? They needed the Word of the King. They needed the Word of Cyrus, the decree, to get back in the land. Jesus is the Word, and He upholds all things by the Word of His power. Every single thing that we need or could possibly want is upheld in Jesus' Word, and who He is, and the Word of His power. Then we see, when He had made purification for sins, Jesus Christ died on the cross, taking your sins, died on the cross, was buried three days, rose again to bring new life. In Romans chapter 6, verse 5, you die with Him and are raised to walk a new life. Jesus makes purification for sins. He is the atoning, He's the priest who makes the sacrifice. He is Himself the atoning sacrifice. And He makes purification for sins. And then He rises and He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sits down in the place of kingly authority. We have a prophet, the voice of the Lord, the word of the Lord. We have a priest who makes purification for our sins and we have a king and he has come and we get to worship him. And so when we as Christians read Ezra and Nehemiah, what we see is the temple rebuilt the walls rebuilt the city of jerusalem the kingdom of god rebuilt all they needed was a king and we know him and we know the king and we have life and life eternal because we know this king oh that we would rejoice in the presence of jesus christ among us the word became flesh and dwelt among us our king has come and he lives with us now and we can rejoice in His glory and His presence forever because He has saved us. And no amount of sin can get in the way of His forgiveness of us. No amount of of political subterfuge and wickedness can stop His plan. No amount of opposition from the enemy can overcome His glory and His power and His Word He has saved us and redeemed us. Oh, rejoice. Rejoice that your sins are as stones thrown as far as the east is from the west and that you've been saved by the blood of a son.